Our Father, we're thankful that you have provided complete for us the justifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ through the cross. We ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to aspects of that work and increase our, the depth of our appreciation for a so great salvation. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight, um, we're going to get back into the uh, death of Christ. And I want to um, start, if you have your notes that go all the way back to the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, um, if you'll look at page 29 and page um, 55. There's three pages, 29, 55, and 85. Uh, so if you can kind of stick your fingers in those uh, sections. Um, what we're trying to do, just to, to get back in the groove here, is whenever we come to these sections, uh, these great events of biblical history, as far as this class goes, remember we're not dealing with verse-by-verse exegesis in this particular class, nor are we dealing with theology as such. What we're trying to deal with is the overall biblical frame of reference that connects all these. So, so far we've studied the birth of Christ, we've studied the life of Christ, we have been studying the death of Christ, and eventually we'll get to the resurrection of Christ. But when we work with these... You want to grasp the historicity of the event. So there's no doubt in your mind that these events happen. These are not stories merely. Liberal theology in a lot of pulpits will talk about these as stories. We're not interested in talking about stories. I don't have to come to church to get stories. I can read them in a book. And I don't need the Bible for stories. The Bible is God's infallible record to His works down through history. And whenever God does a work, it's a profound one, and there's a large amount of truth associated with each one. Now, on that first page I referred you to, the birth of Christ, we said that people come to that this truth that Jesus Christ, God-man, was born, was, was born uh, infallibly God-man, and people reject it or they accept it. But what most people aren't aware of is that in rejecting that virgin birth, it's because they are entertaining a worldview. And the rub is their idea of God, man, and nature. Bad view of God, man, and nature will always result in a rejection of this truth of Scripture. And anyone, conversely, who rejects the virgin birth, you can automatically bet that somewhere they have a warped view, a sub-biblical view of who God is, sub-biblical view of creation, sub-biblical view of man. When we come to the life of Christ, which is the second reference, over on page 55, again, 
the issue is that people will call the story of Jesus uh, the spin that the church put on this Jewish carpenter. Um, maybe there was a Jesus who lived and walked around, but we all know better than that. You know, we're sophisticated people. And so we read that as though that was just, just the church uh, telling stories about this Jewish guy. They're just stories. That's the form of the rejection of the life of Christ. And anytime someone rejects that, fundamentally, what is the great idea they have a problem with? You can predict this. Any person who rejects the gospel narratives, rejects the life of Christ, has a problem with revelation. So with the birth, they have a problem with God, they have a problem with man, they have a problem with nature. With the life of Christ, they have a problem with revelation, that God can speak and act in history in such a way that thoughts are communicated from his mind to ours. Then, in connection with the death of Christ, on page, uh, wherever it was, page 85, I guess, yeah, 85, <clears throat> there we see a case where, again, people will hear about the death of Christ, talk about the cross, and walk away with a false impression that Christ's death was uh, just a martyr. Uh, he, you know, something happened. Uh, there was a book called The Passover Plot many years ago, and the idea was that uh, it was supposed to be a, a political-type confrontation, and it was a big plot, and it screwed up at the last minute, and Jesus really got killed, and he wasn't supposed to get killed. And it's just a whole bunch of stuff. But the cross of Christ offends at the point of the, of the doctrine of justice. That's the problem. So you kind of have to see that every one of these uh, attacks on one of these aspects of Christ is rooted in a prior belief system. So we've been talking then about justice. And we said that to understand correctly what Christ did on the cross, we have to go back to God's attributes. And when we look at God's attributes, we know that he's holy and he's righteous. And that it's not a, a social thing, it's a divine nature thing. Here's God and he's righteous and he's justice. And we call that his holiness. And that's his character. It's not going to change, never has changed. Always will be the same, the same yesterday, today and forever. So it's that that becomes the standard of justice and righteousness. It's not a law that men pass. Men pass laws. But the archetypical law above the law is that. And if you don't have that, what happens to your human laws? What happens? Well, it just becomes whoever has the most political power wins. That's all. There's no transcendent court of appeal. And if you want a classic illustration to just jot down and remember, the classic illustration from recent history in, this, in the past century is Nazism. In 1945, Nazis were brought to Nuremberg to be tried as international war criminals. And of course, in our day, we've had Milosevic and, the, and that kind of stuff. The idea at Nuremberg was... How can we prosecute the Nazi SS? Because they were the chief culprits in this. Because the Nazi SS and their lawyers argued that you cannot prosecute us. We were carrying out the orders of a legitimate regime. 
So if law is relative to a culture, then what argument can you construct that would indict the SS? You can't. Because any law that you construct is external to Germany of the 1930s and 40s. So you're bringing in a law and they claim that that's not our law? That's American law. It's English law. It's French law. It's not German law. We follow the German law precisely. And they did. They did carry out orders precisely. So how do you convict somebody who carries out legitimate orders of the fact that they are illegal? Well, you can't do that unless you have some transcendent standard that is over and above the USA, over and above Germany, over and above England. There's some higher standard that has to be appealed to. And the problem, of course, is that in our day, they want to construct such a thing. And we want to go back to Nimrod and reconstruct the Tower of Babel as a world superpower and world government and make that the transcendent standard. The problem with that solution is what? If you did have it, then how do you judge the world government? The world government, being the one that makes the law, can't be good or evil. So you're still caught in a dilemma. So the only appeal is up here. And that's why this is a powerful idea of Scripture. And this is why when we as Christians say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm sure many of you who have unbelieving people in your family get brickbats thrown at you all the time for being such a narrow-minded religious bigot, think you've got the only way. And I just remind you, yeah, we do, and we happen to be right. We do have the only way. Not because anything we are, but... It's the transcendent standard. The issue in all religion is the issue of how can I meet God there? That's the issue. What, what is your procedure, what is your protocol for coming into fellowship with God? And Christianity alone says that we, the only protocol of acceptance on his side is the cross of Christ. So that's why Jesus Christ on the cross is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. So that's what we've covered so far. Now, one of the things that we emphasized again and again was that the cross fully satisfies. Now, if you go back in your notes um, to page 79... Back there, I, I noted certain observations. I want to review those observations, and then we're going to go to Romans 3, the text tonight. And we want to set up for this last section, this Appendix C, which deals with problems related to the Ref Protestant Reformation about the cross of Christ. The cross affects the universe. See that on page 79? Just, this is, these are just observations about what the New Testament reports about the effect of the cross. And I, I just, we just want to keep that in the back of our head as we come into the text tonight. Number one, it changes the final condemnation of unbelievers. See, the issue that we're going to deal with starting tonight is what relationship does the cross of Jesus Christ have with everybody who is not a believer. 
with everybody who is not a believer and never will be a believer. What's the relationship of the cross to that person? What's the relationship of the cross to angels? So that's why these observations I put way back in page 79. The first thing it does, it changes the status of unbelievers. Because unbelievers do not get permanently excluded from the presence of God because there's not a solution. They get permanently excluded from the presence of God because they have not accepted the solution. A solution exists. So therefore, the condemnation now isn't just because they have sin. It's because they have sin that is unresolved by the cross of Christ. Number two, the cross dooms fallen angels. Well, after Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the world, he descended into a place called Tartarus, and there, in Tartarus, announced to the angelic people that were incarcerated in Tartarus that apparently in some way made some announcement, and the announcement we presume was that I made it to the cross. You people didn't stop me. History is all over. The, the D-Day has occurred. I have finished the work. Okay, now let's come over to him page 86. Because the question now is, is what did Jesus do on the cross? And we pointed out there were three kind of theories. There was the satisfaction theory. <clears throat> there was the uh, effect, uh, the witness theory, the fact that it could... Uh, influence human beings. So we have, number one, satisfaction. That was one idea. Human influence was another. And divine government was a third. Now, satisfaction was an idea developed by Anselm and later by the Reformers that said that on the cross, Jesus satisfied the righteous and holy demands of God against sin. That's what the satisfaction is. Word propitiation also comes in there. The human influence view argued that Jesus' cross work was so impressive that men who see it are brought to Him. Now, that's true. The problem is it's not impressive if it doesn't satisfy God. So, while the human influence theory has a truth to it, the primary truth is here. It satisfies God's righteousness and justice. And divine government, is, it reveals the fact that God can be the justifier as well as not lose his justice when he justifies sinners. Okay, that's the nature of the atonement. That's what we studied about and so forth. Then we came then to the problem of the extent of the atonement. And on page um, 92, I gave four points on the extent of the atonement. And I said, and I promised when I went through that, that we'd spend some time in an appendix so you would appreciate why we say the things we do in those four points. Point number one was that the atonement is the sole legal basis of all grace. The sole legal basis of all grace. Whatever God is gracious to anyone in human history, 
it is because of the cross of Christ. When God was gracious to Old Testament saints, He could be gracious to them without compromising His holiness. I'll give you an example so we can see this in a concrete way. Let's take one specific example to show how God was gracious in the Old Testament. Here's Abraham. Now, had Jesus died when the Abrahamic covenant was made? No. So there was no death of Christ here. Was God still holy and righteous and just? Yes, because he never changes. So, in 2000 B.C., when God entered a covenant with Abraham, God was righteous and God was just. And he entered into a covenant with a sinner. How did he do that? If holiness demands death for sin, how could God enter into a contractual agreement with Abraham? It had to have been, and Paul raises the argument in Romans chapter 4, it had to be because in some way, something happened so that Abraham was encased in righteousness before God. The problem is, in the Old Testament, it's not clear how does this imputed righteousness come about. Where is it coming? What's the source of it? God is the source of God, but how can God do that? And there's always this tension in the Old Testament how you have this holiness of God and yet he's being gracious to people. How can he be just and the justifier? It's not resolved. It's one of those problems like we have. Well, how can a loving God allow babies to die cruelly? And people can really get bent out of shape by that. And the answer to that question is the same as the answer to this one. He does it and someday we will see how. Until, we, until he reveals why, we stand here and have to accept that. Well, the Old Testament saints had to hear. So, when it came down to uh, the basis, that then it, the basis of all grace is the atonement. Then we said, page 94, that God calls all men to himself with an atonement big enough for all people. The cross is sufficient to save every man, woman, and child. Whether they, what, no matter what continent they live in, what people's group they live in, and so forth. Now, if you don't believe that, here's what's going to happen to you. You will never be able to evangelize or witness. Because you haven't got a good... You haven't got a good Good news. There is no good news because if you go to some person at random, how do you know Christ died for them? How do you know the cross is at all relevant to that person? You don't know that. But if you hold to a truncated atonement, it begins immediately to affect your evangelism and missions and so forth. And that's why the church has struggled over this. This is not a side issue. This is central to the whole gospel and witnessing. So we want to make sure that we understand that there's an atonement that's sufficient for all. And I might add that even the most <clears throat> reformed people uh, admit, have to admit that. <clears throat> okay, in page 96, the third point we made let's get these down. <clears throat> the cross is the basis of all grace. The cross 
is sufficient for all to be saved. Now, the cross is received always by faith. It's never appropriated by works. It's not an exchange program. The cross is accepted always and only through faith. Never through works. It's not what promises you make to God. It's not what dedication, dedicating your life to Christ doesn't give you the results of the atonement. It is pa- simply passive reception of faith, uh, of the cross, by faith. You can't do it, of course, if you're not convinced that Christ died for you. And that's the Holy Spirit has to illuminate that. You can hear people say it to you. I heard that for a long time before I became a Christian. didn't click with me. Until one night, it just clicked with me. And that was when the Holy Spirit opened my heart. Same with you. Is that you, you can say you believe, and maybe you really don't. But when the Holy Spirit illuminates your heart, you know that Christ's cross gives you salvation. That's the essence of the gospel. And we must ever lose that center, that core. That's what's going on here in this argument. So that's why we want to be very, very careful. This sounds like a big involved theological mess, but let's keep our eyes on the proper target here. What does it do to the gospel? What does it do to sanctification? Okay, the next thing, the fourth point we said, page 98, was that God... administers salvation asymmetrically. That is, he is directly involved in bringing good about. How does good fruit grow on a fallen creation and a cursed ground? How do you bring forth good fruit from cursed ground? It's by direct intervention of God. So whatever good there is, is due to him. However, whatever evil is, and the cross is related to both of these, good and evil. Evil is a rejection of God, and he is not accountable for that evil. He is sovereign over it, but not responsible for it. So God's sovereignty, as expressed in Scripture, is asymmetrical. And you can prove it from the way the scriptures describe it. For example, let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. I want to be sure of this asymmetry because we'll get into it later on in this, this same discussion. So turn to Matthew chapter 25. This is an example among several in the text of scripture where you see this asymmetry. Chapter 25, the Lord Jesus um, Sermon. I want you to look at verse 34 and verse 41. This is speaking of a divine judgment of the nations at the return of Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ judges each those who believe and those who don't. But look at the language with which he describes both of those. Look carefully at verse 34. 
The king will say to those on his right, that is, those who believe, those who enter the kingdom, he will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So from all eternity, the kingdom was prepared for those who believe and those who enter the kingdom. So, this is very obviously they were chosen. Obviously, God has a say in this thing, this matter. Now look at the language and look at the shift in emphasis in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for you? No. You see, there's not, it's not a sym- it's, uh, there's not a symmetry between verse 34 and verse 41. In verse 34, the divine end was chosen from all eternity. In verse 41, the divine end of it, permanent exclusion from the presence of God was prepared for the devil and his angels. And it's like, it, it, like but these guys wind up there. You feel the different syntax now in verse 34 and verse 41. That's what we're talking about by God's asymmetry. I'll show you another place where it comes out. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Once you catch on to this, you'll see it again and again in Scripture. I'm just showing you two obvious ones. In Romans 9, verses 22 through 23... Verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, in the Greek, there's different tense verbs. And whereas in English, we have an active and we have a passive tense. Active voice, I kill. Passive voice, I am killed, or I die. Middle is, could be I die, it's a weak, kind of a mix of active and passive, or it could be reflexive, I kill myself. Well, the Greek syntax is a lot more precise in this area than, than the English. In just some languages, it says, it's not that the human brain is different, it's just that some languages, it's easier to follow this way. I know my Japanese daughter-in-law points out to me sometimes that she likes the English translation better than the Japanese, because in Japanese, the singles and the plurals aren't as clear as they are in English. You have to go by context. Not that the Japanese don't know singles and plurals, it's just that their language vehicle doesn't emphasize that. So, it's not to say that English is a bad language. It's just saying that there's a difference here. Anyway, point is, in verse 22, the verb prepare is not in the passive. It's in the middle. It's in the middle voice. And that means there's not a heavy stress on them being prepared, as in verse 23. 
In verse 23 it says, And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. See the difference? Verse 23 is not quite the same as verse 22. They're not mirror images of each other. And you'll see this again and again in Scripture. And that's what we mean. God is connected with the good, and he's more or less kind of remote from the evil, though he never loses his sovereign control over the evil. And there's just that, that, that asymmetry. Okay. Now, let's turn to Romans chapter 3. We want to spend some time preparatory to getting into the argument in the text. Now, if you'll turn in the notes to uh, the Appendix C that we just handed out. Um, tonight, I gave you some, some more of the debate. I didn't, have, didn't finish the rest of it, but uh, please read that because it will give you an idea that this is not new stuff. This has been going on for centuries. Um, I know some of you work in your workplaces. You run across people who are Christians or in one extreme or the other and you just wonder sometimes, well, where are they coming from or where are they coming from and so on. So this will help you in that. First thing to know on, on page one, one thing I want to point out before we get to Romans 3, this is a Protestant debate. To my knowledge, it doesn't come up in Catholic circles. Now, there's a reason for that. The Protestants did something at the Reformation that split them away from the Catholic Church on a major point. Several major points. And it was one of those major points that sets up a dilemma. One of the major Protestant points was that the cross fully satisfies the justice and wrath of God. Fully so that there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Not 90%, not 85%, not 50%, and then you have to fill the rest in from the uh, Mother Mary and uh, some penitents and doing the beads. It's 100%. There is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Well, immediately the Catholics, the Roman Catholic theologians, came back onto the Reformers. And they had some good questions. They said, hey, wait a minute here. Just a second. The Catholics counterattacked the Protestants and said, if Christ's atonement satisfied everything, what about the people who are unsaved? They go to hell. They're still being punished for their sins. The cross of Christ never solved their problem. So how can you say that the cross of Christ totally satisfies? And they said, also, there's something else. They raised the question. Isn't it true that every believer dies physically? Doesn't that mean we're still under the condemnation in Adam? Doesn't it mean we're under the death sentence of Genesis 2? So how can you Protestants argue that the cross of Jesus Christ fully satisfies? Isn't it true that when Christians sin, we get discipline? Isn't it true that we have to confess our sins in order to be forgiven? If that's so, 
then how do you say, Protestants, that the cross of Christ fully satisfies? And what do you do about those who profess to be Christians and go for a little while in the Christian life and then flake out? What are they? So the Catholics came back on the Protestants over this issue because the Catholics were arguing that Luther and Calvin had opened a door and they're all the animals are going to get out of the barn here because it was an open door to licentious living to think that the cross of Christ was so satisfying to God that I have now no condemnation. And we mustn't allow people that freedom because if they get that freedom, they're going to abuse it. That's too dangerous a gospel to preach. So what happened historically that you will read about in the notes is that you have the Protestant Reformation, you have the Catholic Counter-Reformation. And at the same time the Catholic Counter-Reformation is going on, you're also getting this, what we call the second generation of the Reformers who are trying to answer this and qualify what Luther and Calvin said. And that's where we get into limited atonement and everything else. It didn't come with Calvin and Luther. It came with the second generation who are dealing with the Catholic counter-objection that you Protestants are preaching a gospel of license, you have no discipline, you have no standard to hold people to, you've removed from all people the terror of the holiness of God by your doctrine, this perverse Protestant doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. So that's the setup for this discussion. And that's why we say, as we advance down through the life of Christ, you notice what's happening? We're advancing through church history. Where was the hypostatic union doctrine that Jesus Christ was God and man? What century, what era was that? That was Chalcedon, 4th century. And as we've got into the life of Christ, Revelation, we've gotten back more to the Protestant view that, that, that Revelation comes through the Scripture. Now we're at the cross of Christ. We're in the heart of the whole Protestant Reformation here. Okay. What we want to do now is turn to Romans chapter 3, and we want to kind of refresh our minds as to what the text says. So let's review through this, and we'll use these observations um, for the next few nights, next few times the class meets. Romans chapter 3, let's start with uh, verse 20. Verse 20 ends the section that Paul began in verse 18 of chapter 1. So from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul has made the point that all men are sinners. And he concludes in verse 20 that by the works of the law... No flesh will be justified in his sight. Now, look, look carefully at the language. Where's the justifying occurring? Where's the locus of the justification? In man or in God? That's, it's important to think about this, because this, this also, this is the, where the Protestants and Catholics part company here. This is one of the places right here. In Protestantism, if you read the biography of Luther, you can imagine how this happened. 
Remember Luther? He was a Catholic monk who was so conscious of his sin that the first time he offered Mass and his father was sitting out in the, in the church, he froze. He got up to the point of the, of the transubstantiation and the, and the wafer and the, and the cup, and he froze. Couldn't finish the Mass. And the reason was is that he felt so utterly under the condemnation of God. Luther had a very poignant view of sin. Some would say that he was psycho that way. That's what the, the Roman Catholic people would argue. But Luther was tremendously convicted of sin. He would go confess his sin to the other priests dozens of times a day. And he, he, he realized, I never can get rid of this. I never can get rid of this. And he's, something's wrong here. And he started to study the book of Romans. And he suddenly realized, oh, I got it wrong. I can't look at my heart and be assured of my salvation. Why can't I? Because what do I always see when I look at my heart? I always see the yet-to-be-sanctified crud that's in all of us. I don't see sinlessness in me. And if I don't see sinless in me, how do I have assurance that I please Him? Well, his message that he saw in the book of Romans was that when I look to him, I'm justified before him, not because of Martin Luther, but because of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ in the presence of God that makes the difference. So what had happened in his focus it has taken from here, internal here, to external there. You remember that in the notes. That is fundamentally the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestant Reformation. And I'm sad to say that in our own evangelical churches, we have people teaching sanctification that is a resurgence of Roman Catholicism. Because they're making salvation contingent on the fruit in your heart. That is not the Protestant position. That is Catholicism. And a lot of guys, trying to be godly, trying to be honest to the word, are leading us back to Rome. We are to look outside of our hearts at the Father where Christ is the righteousness. You look at yourself and you're going to be depressed. You're going to see a big mess. That's not the place to get assurance. So, when we read here... In verse 20, that's what Paul's talking about. He says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. See, the, remember what we said? The issue in the whole thing boils down to Jesus Christ satisfying God's holiness. That's the center of the action, right there. So that's where Paul says, Because by the word of the law, no flesh will be justified. Not, not he, he doesn't say, Well, feel good. Or will be justified before men. Or even justified before me, an apostle. He says, justified in whose sight? In his sight. That is, justified to this perfection. Now let's just stop and think about what a tremendous thing this is. This is dynamite. It means that the transcendental standard of righteousness and justice is fully satisfied. And that ends the condemnation. 
That's why we have access to God. That's why we don't have to go through intermediary saints. That's why we don't have to go to Mary, hoping that as the mother of Jesus, she'll, she'll put a good word in for us. We come directly to God through Christ. Why? Because the center of the stage is right here. It's not down inside man's heart. It's not down here. It's up here. That's where the action is. Now let's follow the text as Paul now shifts in verse 21 away from the fact that no one on the basis of his works can be justified before the law. But now, notice, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest or revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So see, he's not saying that the righteousness of God violates the Old Testament. Rather, the Old Testament points to it. The point he's making, though, is that this is something that the law and the prophets pointed to, but did not reveal. Now, let's think. Did the law and the prophets in the Old Testament reveal something of God's righteousness? Well, sure. Exodus? Passover? The judgments upon the nation? Wasn't that all the righteousness of God? Yeah. But why is it, you suppose, that it can't be said that this righteousness, the righteousness in Christ, could have been revealed in the Old Testament? What had to have happened, and this is why you see, this is why I always say, study the Bible chronologically, because before we got to the death of Christ, what did we have to study? The birth of Christ and the life of Christ. And what is the righteousness revealed? In this perfect man. Was there ever a perfect man before Jesus? After the fall? No. So how could the righteousness of God be fully revealed in history? Where can we get a model? Today, everybody's a model or a mentor. Where can we get one? wasn't Moses. Every biography in the Old Testament has warts. Right? Is there a, is there a sinless biography anywhere in the Old Testament? No. But do you get the position that because they are condemned, that there's something higher than them that's in the wings, kind of? That's the point. Now Jesus Christ, as perfect God and perfect man, walks around and perfectly obeys. Now, has righteousness been revealed? Yes. That's what he's talking about. The righteousness here in verse 21 is not just talking about the attribute of God. The attribute of God was was somewhat revealed in the Old Testament. But what he's talking about, the righteousness of God here, it's more powerful than merely talking about the attribute of God. The righteousness of God here means that the Messiah has come and humanly speaking, we've got perfect righteousness now, displayed through a person, displayed through a man creating God's image. This is news. Never occurred before in history. Okay, now the righteousness of God has been clear. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, now it says, the righteousness of God, and how does it come? The righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, there is no distinction. And what do you suppose the distinction that he's talking about in verse 22 in the context? Jew and Gentile. 
This is the primary people group division in all of Scripture. So that means, by implication, it doesn't matter what your race is, what your heritage is, what your genes are, whether it's this article, you want to pass your genes on to the next generation. God's not interested in whether you want to pass your genes on to the next generation. God offers salvation through Jesus Christ, and that's the issue, not your genes. The issue isn't your background. The issue isn't how many hard times you've had in your life, or how much prosperity you've had in your life. That's not the issue here. There's only one issue, and that is, do we or don't we conform to the righteousness and justice of God? And if we don't, how do we talk to Him? How do we carry on a relationship? So, he says, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It isn't faith in my promises to God, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, or my vows, or my dedication. It is faith in Christ Jesus, not faith in Charlie Clough or whatever your name, fill it in, and what I'm going to do for God. That's not the access point. It's faith in Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now look at this, verse 24. Being justified. And that means that it's a state. Let's pick up on this language here. Being justified equals a state. That's not an event maybe as a result of an event, but it's a status. Being justified. My son sent me a document about that they had, Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church had agreed on this document about justification. Uh, I haven't read it. So I haven't followed the story. not sure, actually. Um, Laura, has your dad followed this at all? Laura's dad is a church his, his, history guy, history buff. Um, I, uh, I just haven't followed. I, I've heard the same things. Uh, what makes me...